Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together visionaries, scientists, healers, artists, and seekers. I'm so grateful that I get to interview these extraordinary thought leaders and share their wisdom with you. And I love listening to the conversations that are led by my co-host and dear friend, Cleo Wade. Cleo is a beautiful poet and author. I deeply admire her and the way she keeps her heart open to the world. Together, we believe that engaging in open-minded, honest, and sometimes difficult conversations has the power to change our lives. All right, over to Cleo. Hi, it's Cleo Wade. We've got a really special episode today with Elizabeth Gilbert, who sat down with Gwyneth a few years ago at In Goop Health in LA. It's one of our favorite Goop podcast episodes of all time, so we wanted to share it again with all of you. As many of you may know, Elizabeth is the mega best-selling author of Eat, Pray, Love, Big Magic, and City Girls. In their conversation in front of a live audience, Elizabeth and Gwyneth talk about creativity as a profound tool for healing. This resonates so much with everything I've been talking about here on the pod these past few months. I loved how Elizabeth explains how there are a lot of different ways to create in the world, even if you don't see yourself as a quote unquote creative person. As Elizabeth says, the universe has buried these strange jewels within all of us. And today she teaches us how to hear our truths or those little whispers around us asking us to be brave and do the thing and do it with love. Okay, let's get to Elizabeth Gilbert. Hi guys. Hi phones. <laughs> Everybody wants to capture the I moment. know, let's do, we'll give them some, a few poses. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for Hi, being sweetheart. here. My Thank honor you. and pleasure and delight. I was telling Elizabeth backstage that one of the sort of seminal moments for me in my journey towards, you know, what will hopefully be integration and self-awareness one day. <laughs> Let's keep trying. <laughs> was your TED Talk that 
was many years ago now. Yeah, I think it was 2010. Um, was it really? Yeah, yeah. Wow, time flies. Yeah. And I, I really recommend you all checking that out if you haven't already. It's an, an incredible study around creativity and, and fearlessness in a lot of ways. So at the, at the beginning of Big Magic, you define creativity as the relationship between a human being and the mysteries of inspiration. Yeah. Which you touched on a bit in your TED Talk. Yeah. And you also wrote, the universe buries strange jewels deep within us all and then stands back to see if we can find them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. So first I want to ask you about that idea. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, it's an idea that, that came to me from a poet named Jack Gilbert, who is no relation to me, despite the name, but I think of him as kind of like my spiritual father and my poetic godfather. He was teaching at the University of Tennessee, and I met a, a, a young woman who took a poetry class with him. And she had come from a very disadvantaged background. She grew up in a, in a like a flatlined, cultureless, kind of not at all enriched society where people just work, worked hard and suffered, basically. And she had managed to get herself into college. She was the first person in her family to get there. And she had been told by her guidance counselor to go study accounting or something that she could make use of and make money of. And she accidentally, due to a clerical error, ended up in his poetry class. And it was literally the first time in her life she had ever seen art you know, this, this beautiful man who was this great poet. And there was something that it, it awakened in her and she started writing poetry and she was good at it. And one day he took her aside after class and he said, I think you have a gift. You know, what do you, what do you want to do with your life? And she said it was like, it came from the earth itself. It didn't even come from her. This voice said, I think I want to be a writer. And he just took her by the arm and he said, do you have the courage to do it? And he said, the jewels that are hidden inside of you are begging you to say yes. <laughs> and I found that to be the most loving, incredible thing that somebody could say to a young creative person. And, and that's where I had the line, the universe buries these strange jewels within all of us. And then, and then it's almost like a game. It's a dance. And that's why I think of creativity as a relationship, not between self and self, but between self and mystery, mm -hmm. that there are these, these strange forces out there that want to dance with us. Ideas want to play with us. And they're constantly kind of whispering to us like, want to do something? Do you want to make something? Do you want to try? And then it, it, and so for me, I feel a lot happier when I create with the idea that I'm interacting with a mystery rather than that it's all coming from me. Because I, if it's all coming from me, I feel like I can't support that. I don't feel like I'm big enough. But right. if it's me in a conversation with the divine, with the mystery, with some strange process that humans have been doing forever, that somehow makes it easier. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like this was something that you talked about after the success of Eat, Pray, Love. Yeah. And saying to your, saying, you know, overtly that how does one, somebody came up to you and said, well, what are you going to do now? Like Not somebody, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> like as if everybody. your life was over. Yeah, yeah. And so you really had to almost dissect your relationship with creativity after a period of paralyzation, yeah. right? Yeah. And really connect to the idea of, these muses and these things that are around us that you just said whisper to us. Yeah. Why do you think it's so hard for so many of us to hear those whispers? Well, there's only one reason and it's always the same and it's fear and that is nothing to be ashamed of. So I just want you to know that that never, ever, ever goes away. So just relax and enjoy that <laughs> idea. It never goes away. I just published my ninth book 
I will continue to write books for the entirety of my natural life, and I fully expect that fear will be my companion through the entire thing. So if you're looking for some kind of miracle where you're never going to experience fear again, if you want me to tell you that you're never going to experience it again, I can't because I still do. But I think, I, underst- I think I've come to understand fear in a way, certainly fear and, and how it relates to creativity. So do you mind if I try to explain Please. my theory of it? Okay. So, so fear is the oldest part of our brain. It's the reptilian, like way back and deep in the cortex part. It doesn't have any imagination. It doesn't have any creativity. It doesn't have any perspective. It's a very rudimentary brain function. And all it knows how to do is feel the alarm and shut everything down. Like that's what it does. And that's its only job. So before we had consciousness, before we had self-awareness, before we had love, before we had creativity, we had that, you know, and that's why we're here because we had this survival instinct that was like, whoa, I don't know what that is. Stop. And so fear's job, entire job is to stop you from doing things when it doesn't understand what you're doing. Right. So any time in your entire life that you do something where the outcome is not clear and where it's never been done before by you, your fear has a job to do. And that job is to say, don't do that, because that's probably going to end in our death. Like, that's literally what it believes, because that's the only function that it has. And that's why it's so scary. Like, that's why if you try to sit down and write a poem, it literally feels like you're going to die, (laughs) you know, because there's this part of your brain that's like, this will certainly end in my death. And so like the very first thing I have to do when I, for instance, sit down to try to write a poem is that I have to feel that reflex. And then I have to say to my fear, so far, no one has died from me writing poetry, but I understand you. I understand you. So there's this understanding that I have of how fear works and I accept it and I don't fight it and I don't try to get it to go away because it's impossible. I mean, unless I had some kind of weird brain surgery that took it away, it's always going to be there. So the first thing to do is to just have empathy and understanding for the fact that that is the natural reaction. And it's not just for poetry. It's anything new, anything new that you're ever going to do that you've never done before where the outcome is unclear, your fear only has one job and that is nope, nope, don't, 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 death, murder, mayhem, back it up, shut down, stay on the couch, be safe, don't die. And so the relationship that I've established over the years is just a very loving conversation with that, very maternal way that I speak to that because I know that it's just not that smart. So I just talk to it like it's my dumb cousin (laughs) who just isn't that bright. And I'm like, I know, I know it's scary, but you know what? I've got, mommy's got this. And I always invite fear to stay with me because as soon as I say, it's okay for you to be here and you can stay with me and we're going to do this together it just relaxes and it goes to sleep like a toddler in a car seat. So that seems to be the only way that I've ever been able to deal with it. That's actually a very powerful tool. And I think, I think a lot of us, if we were able to invite in fear yeah. or spite or anger or anything. Shame, or as shame. you were talking about, that's the really hard one. That's the million dollar one. Right. But yeah, if you can just say to all of those things, I've got all the room in the world for you, sweetheart. I have all the room in the world for you. You can stay, you can stay. You're allowed in the room. It's, yes, it's I hard. Agree. I agree. It's hard, but it's like, <laughs> it's, that's, it. that's the only way I've ever been able to move forward yeah. through any of that stuff. To me, it's really interesting that you always articulate the creative process, because when I hear you talk about it or when I read your words around the creative process, it really, to me, feels like you're talking about spirituality. 
Yeah, I am. Yeah. And I think so many of us divine, define creativity as like painting a picture or writing a poem or mm. like having or a skill. Having a skill or right. thinking like, well, I'm not a creative person. So this, like, I don't understand what that means. So can you tell me a little bit about your broader definition of creativity? Yeah. Okay. Here's what I think. I think that I don't really know what's going on. And in that regard, I probably have a lot in common with you. Like, I don't get what the literal fuck is going on. <laughs> like, what are we... I mean, you guys, it's profoundly weird experience to be a human being. Like, we're, we're on this ball of debris spinning around a star in the middle of emptiness at 67,000 miles an hour. We are made, made out of meat... And yet we have consciousness. We are the only thing on the planet that is like us. Like nothing else feels the way we feel or reacts to life the way that we do. Like we have a lot in common with other life forms except for this insane amount of consciousness that's so unprecedented that nothing else has ever had. We don't know how to use it. We don't know why we have it. We appear to be like, we keep looking for things like us out there in the universe and we're not. It's weird. And then they drop you here into a family. And you're like, what? Like you, like you wake up one day and you're like, this is my mother and my father and these are my siblings. And then all this stuff happens to you and all this loss and all this pain. It's so weird. And, <laughs> and I don't know what any of it is or what any of it means. But the one thing that it, the, the, there's one thing that appears to me, which is that we do seem to be living in a universe that is in a constant and unending state of creation. There's this kind of old-fashioned view of creation that creation happened couple, you know, however long ago, and then it ended, you know, like God made it and then it stopped and we've just been bouncing around inside of it. But the, but what it appears to be, if you look at physics, is that it's not ended. It's, it's, there's this ongoing thing and, and galaxies are being born. There's a thing called star nurseries where stars are being nursed into life and new like planetary systems are being made. It's never stopping. And you, it's never stopping here either. And so we are not witnessing that we're part of that. Like, so we are from that. We come from that. We work into that. And so if the energy of the universe is a constant crea creation, when you are in creation yourself, you're in alignment with it. And that's why it feels so good. Because you're, you're in the river of the thing that is happening from here to the outer extent of the universe always. And when you're not in creativity and when you're not in creation, you're against that flow. And that's why it feels like depression. And that's why it feels like despair. And that's why it feels so heavy. So for me, the best way that I can feel healthy, which means a sense of belonging, not just belonging to other people, but belonging to this whole weird story that's happening that we're in, is if I do creativity small c on a small scale. So if I make something then I'm also creating just the way that the universe is constantly making something. And for some reason, that feels deeply good at the soul level. And when I'm not doing that, I'm stagnating against a power that wants me to create with it. Does that, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So for me, it's profoundly spiritual because I feel like there's no greater way to connect with capital C creation than to engage in small C creation. And that C can be as small as you want. That can literally be like cutting a picture out of a magazine and pasting it to a page. Look, I created a thing. You know, there's something about making something with your hands and doing something that just makes you healthy. And I think it's what we're supposed to be doing so that we don't despair. Yeah. Or even, you know, I think for those of us who aren't creative in those terms, you know, the idea that we can be 
creating ourselves there you go. by being in integrity, by having the difficult conversation, by leaning into something, by growing, <laughs> by growing. Like that's, is that creativity in and totally. of itself? Totally. And maybe it's the purest, the absolutely purest definition. You're bringing yourself into being. Right. Right. And the only other thing I know beyond the recognition that everything seems to be in constant creation is that for some reason, and I will never know why, I was entrusted with this one mm-hmm. to take care of. I was given stewardship over this soul dropped into this body, into this family. And that's the one that I'm apparently supposed to be taking care of because they gave it to me. And so I think that like nourishing creation in terms of taking care of that thing mm-hmm. that you've been given, yourself, your body, your soul, your spirit, I think that's also a way of being in alignment with creation. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. So how do you reconcile grief? I mean, we were, yeah. we were talking about it earlier. Yeah. And you lost your partner recently. Yeah. How do you, as a person who is looking at the universe in that way, how do you reconcile it? How do you incorporate it into your creative process? Like, what does it mean to you if you could look at it in a more agnostic way? I think that the greatest creative challenge of my life has been my grieving of Rhea. And I think that grief, this may be a weird thing to say, but I think grief requires enormous creativity because what it wants to do, what grief feels like is a shutting down and despair, you know, which is a, which is a crushing of yourself. And so it requires this kind of very brave and very enormous creativity to figure out how am I going to live without the one person that I always said I can't live without. So that's interesting, mm-hmm. you know? Like, it, it, the, it, if I can even step back from it, I say interesting, but I always think interesting is a useful word when I'm in despair, because I think, it's like, well, this is, a, this is an interesting one they've given you. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, they took away the only person you ever felt safe around. That's interesting. How are you gonna feel safe now? Right. How are you gonna create safety when she's not here? And so for me, it's been a year and a half of intense creative exploration into that question. And some of the ways that I've been finding my way through it are, like I talk to her a lot, mm-hmm. I write to her. I, soon after she died, I took out my laptop and I just, I wrote, Rhea, I cannot live without you and so I won't. So I need you and I'm writing to you and I need you to write back to me. And I have my hands on the keys, so go. And I'm really afraid that this isn't going to work. But I really need to talk to you. 
and I'm really scared that you're not going to be there. And the next line coming out of my hands was Rhea saying, well, if you're scared it's not going to work, you better not fucking try it. <laughs> and I was like, there she is. <laughs> I know that voice. I know that voice. And I started this conversation with her, this dialogue that I've continued since that time. And I don't know, and I don't need to know, whether what is responding to me on that page is Rhea's spirit, is an angel, is God, or if it's just that she's so internalized into me because I knew her and loved her so well that I actually now own her voice in me. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter, but it works. So I think like whatever you can do mm -hmm. to try to find that. You know, another thing is I've been, in, I was talking to you backstage and saying I've been in a lot of, grief comes in weird waves, as those of you who grieve know. Like you kind of think you're on the other side of it and then it's like, oh, here's another one. <laughs> you know, and there's a surrendering, there's a surrendering that has to happen to that where you just hit your knees and you're like, oh, I'm in this now. Like I, I'm just, I, I'm, it's a bow down. Like this wave is bigger than me and now I'm just going to have to sob until it stops. And I've been in that for the last few days. Mm -hmm. fun times. But, but what happened is that I talked to her through it. And, and what I was saying to her over the last few days was that I'd reached this place in myself where I kept saying to her, nobody can comfort me but you. There was never anybody who could comfort me at the deepest level of my pain than you. And what I heard back, and again, I don't know if it's coming from there, if it's coming from here, if it's, it doesn't matter. But what I heard back was her saying, baby, you have to give people a chance. And that means you have to tell them that you're in pain. Mm -hmm. So if you, you got it, they're not going to be as good at it as me, but you got to give them a chance. <laughs> and so what I've been doing literally for the last three days is every single person who I encounter, I'm like, hi, I'm in a lot of pain right now. <laughs> um, I did that to you. You're like, how are you? I'm like, not good. I'm in a lot of pain right now. Nice to meet you. You know, like this is literally the first, uh, the makeup artist. I was in the, the trailer and she's like, hi, how are you? I'm like, real sad, real sad, <laughs> not doing well. And she's like, it's okay. When I was 13, my parents moved a chair into my bedroom so I could counsel my friends. What's going on? And I'm finding that like, just say it. Like, just like, I, I hear Rhea going, yeah, do that. Yeah. Do that. Every single person, like if you're in pain, tell them, tell them, don't tell me. She's like, tell me and tell them, you know, like don't, don't close it off to the rest of the world. And that's creative. Mm -hmm. Like walking up to a stranger and being like, hi, I'm really sad. Right. Like that's a creative act. But um, we're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to say, I'm great. How are you? I'm not sure we're supposed to. I think that's what we're culturally trained to do. Right. But I also think that every time you do that and, it's, and it isn't true, I think you die a little bit, <laughs> as, you, as you may well know. And I also think you miss the chance to connect, you know? You um, absolutely miss that opportunity and yeah. miss the opportunity to have depth with someone. Even, like, even that at a cocktail party would change our lives. <laughs> like, right. you know, instead of making small talk, if someone said, how are you? And Not good. Yeah. <laughs> Not good. Real sad. I lost the only person who ever made me feel safe. How are you? You know, who knows? And they might just be like, that's too much for me. <laughs> and that means that you just found out that's not the person you're supposed to be talking to today. That's right. You know, and that's awesome. And then you can just turn to the next person and be like, are you my mother? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> who is it? And it's a weird, weird thing to do. But also this whole thing is just an experiment. Yeah. You know, like this whole thing, those star nurseries that are being created on the other side of the galaxy are just an experiment in creation. Let's try one. What happens if we do this? You know, and I think that the more that I can live my life in a constant state of experimentation, mm -hmm. the better off I seem to do. So and what sometimes we, they fail. <laughs> right. And yeah. I was just going to say, so what do we do? Like how, what is the best way to react when they fail? You know, for, for some of us, 
it's really difficult to sum up the courage to, you know, say something you know the other person doesn't want to hear or pick up a paintbrush or whatever, you know, and it's like, so if you've been able to speak to the reptilian part of the brain and override it, and then you make the risk and then you fail. Yeah, that sucks. (laughs) And it's painful. And I think that you get to then say, I was so brave today. I was so brave today. I actually carry around in my journal that I carry with me everywhere that is tear-stained as much as now as it was when I was 13. I carry around gold stars and I give them to myself. Wow. Like, as a gold, you were brave. You were brave. There's a gold star. So I, I love how like Etsy you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when we go backstage, I'll give you one. Like okay. it's, and I feel Thank like, you. and um, and sometimes when I see somebody do, I'm like, you just a gold star. <laughs> well, I can, to encourage other people to uh, to to be courageous too, and then to also know that there are days where you just cannot be. Um, yesterday was one of those days for me. Like I could not find my courage. I just could not find my courage. And then I just reached out to the people who I trust the most. Mm-hmm. And I said, I've got nothing. I'm just sad. And, um, and I don't, and I can't take coaching today. And I can't take, like, I, I was talking to my best friend yesterday and she's like, you know what I think you should. And I said, be very careful. <laughs> I said, be very careful. Cause I'm, I'm, I can't hear coaching right now. I just need you to tell me that you love me and that I'm perfect. Like, please don't tell me what to do. Right. Cause I am not going to be able to do it today. Maybe tomorrow. And that's also a very loving tactic to take yeah. to yourself, to, just to know when you're at your limit and to just be like, this is as far as I, I can go yeah. today. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Toomey has a soft side. Discover their new Acer bag collection in its pillowy pleats, satin finish, and crescent shape. Acer is the bag to carry for your nine to five and the five to nine plans that follow. Versatility, after all, is Toomey's signature. Shop the full Azra collection on Toomey.com or at a Toomey store near you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. The common theme here seems to be whether you're talking to that reptilian part of your brain or whether you're talking to your partner who passed away or whether you're talking to a stranger at a party or whether you're talking to your new boyfriend or whatever, it's talk and have it be, tell the truth, tell the truth, tell the truth, tell the truth. That is the epigraph of Eat, Pray, Love. Tell the truth, tell the truth, tell the truth. And Rhea's famous line that I loved so much and what I, and she had been an addict and the only way she got sober, she was a heroin addict for years before I met her. She lived on the streets of the East Village. She was homeless. She was in prisons. She was in, you know, the only way she got sober, the only way anyone, and I know some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, the only way any of us get sober is by telling the truth. That's mm-hmm. it. That is the path to sanity and sobriety. And, it's, and it has to keep happening, mm-hmm. not once, not twice, but every single day. And she said, you know, whenever I'm really in trauma, I remember her line and her line was, the truth has legs. It's the only thing that will remain standing in the room when everything else has blown up and disintegrated. The last thing in the room standing is always going to be the truth. Mm -hmm. And she used to say to me, since we're going to end up there anyway, why don't we just start there? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> like, let's skip the drama right. that's going to happen when we're not telling the truth. And so whenever we, I would see her and she lived that. I would see her when she was in a problem with people. She'd be like, okay, why don't we just 
right now just start by telling the truth because I can feel something's up and we can just dance around this or we can just go right into it. And she was so fearless about stepping into that arena again and again and again. She was my greatest teacher of honesty. Mm. And it doesn't mean it's doesn't mean it's going to work. It just means n- nothing else will. Right. <laughs> like, it's your best chance. Right. It's your best chance. But I think, you know, that's c- almost, in my mind, phase two. Because, you know, for me, for a long, long time, for many years of my life, and something that I notice in many of my friends, is that first you have to be willing to tell yourself the truth. Yeah. And I think a lot of us have a really hard time telling ourselves the truth, especially if we perceive that there's a lot of risk in what we're, what the truth holds right. or that it might collapse a system or a relationship. Right. So how have you become, how have you found that purity for yourself or how did Rhea around, I mean, it sounds for her like she kind of went through the ringer and she had no choice. Right. She got to the, you know, it's rock bottom. You have a choice. You die or you tell the truth. Right. Right. You like, die or you stop lying. Yeah. So for those of us for whom the universe didn't give us a set of circumstances quite that extreme, yeah. how, do we, how do we hear our truth and how do we express it irrespective of what the outcome might be? Do you know, I think, I know it's dramatic that she was a heroin addict, but, and I have never been that, I've never been in those circumstances well, I have. And it's well, let's talk. Um, but I do believe that it is actually the same thing. I do believe that you reach a point where you feel like you have a choice. You will either die or you have to stop lying. Right. I think that's right. I think that's really right. And what we would love to be is healthy enough to not have to take it to there, to not have to get to that where you're so broken that you're at that crossroads, that maybe you can catch it before then a little bit so that you're not totally broken. But sometimes that is where it ends up being. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this, what you just said about telling yourself the truth, I think that there's a two-part, I've found a two-part stage for myself when I'm, when I'm in that kind of trauma the first thing is to recognize that I'm in trauma. And so the first thing that trauma needs is a mother. Mm. And I don't mean the one you got. (laughs) I don't mean the one that I got. Maybe you got, maybe you were lucky enough that you got that actual mother who had that incredible capacity to hold you when you were in trauma and to tell you that everything was okay and that you were perfect and that you were beloved and that nothing was expected of you and that you could collapse and that she had you, that she could hold you. Maybe you had that mom, maybe not. But what you need to find, what I need to find when I'm in that trauma is that love from me to me. So the first thing I have to find is that internalized mother who's, and I didn't learn this from, I love my mom, but I didn't happen to learn that she taught me a lot of stuff, but she didn't have that. She didn't have that piece. So I've had to find it on my own. And I've had to find it by learning and seeing other people do it. So the first step, and this is exactly why when I said to Cheryl, don't coach me right now, I needed mothering energy. I didn't need coaching. I needed, I've got you. I will, and this is what the, this is what the iconic mythological, unconditional loving mother love says. It says, you can do no wrong because you are my precious and you are my beloved. And I don't care if you totally fail. I don't care if you lose everything. I'll be with you. I've got you. You can tell me the truth. There'll be no punishment for it. I've got you. I've got you and I'll be right here with you no matter what happens. You cannot fail because I love you. Like that's the ultimate mother love. 
right? And I've had to learn how to find that, as I say, in me. Once you can do that with yourself, then you can be everybody's mother. Yeah, no, you know, like you can sit like with anyone's pain. If you can sit with your own pain that way, then like your pain doesn't scare me because I've seen mine. Right. You know, so like, no, there's nothing you could do that could scare me because, man, I've seen this shit, <laughs> you know, and I've sat with it and held it, you know. And so step one, and that's the opposite of shame, because shame says, get your shit together. You're a fucking loser. You've blown it again. How many times you have to do this? I can't believe we're in the same shit that you've been in your whole life. Loser, loser. Lo-. Like, so that iconic mother love is the only antidote to that. Like our friend Brene has taught me. I remember tweeting out one night in the middle of the night in a panic attack, Brene, what's the opposite? What's the antidote to, sh- to, to shame? And I thought she was going to say pride, but the antidote is empathy. Mm-hmm. It's right. love. It is not pride. Pride's another kind of ego, right? It's just love. So the first step when you're in trauma, and you'll know you're in trauma because you're hysterical, and as they say in the recovery rooms, if it's hysterical, it's historical, and if it's historical, it's trauma. So if you're in trauma, first step, mother love, to, I've got you, I love, and I write letters to myself from love. I love you, I've got you. I will never abandon you. I've been with you through this whole thing. We're gonna get through this. You cannot make a mistake because you are precious unto me. Mm. And then once you can breathe, because that's what you need to be able to breathe. Once you can breathe, the next step is father love. And again, not the one you got. <laughs> I'm talking about iconic, mythical unconditional loving father. And again, this doesn't have anything to do with don't get gender freaky on me, you guys. I'm just talking about mythological icons, right? So the mythological father love is the then the thing that says, okay, kid, you're brave, you're strong. What are we going to do? How are you going to pick yourself up now? You know, but you don't do that first because the one who's in trauma is like, I don't know how. All it needs is a bosom, you know? So like you start with the bosom until that tiny terrified thing can breathe. And then when it can breathe, you're like, let's make a plan. Okay, it's maybe time to tell the truth. It's maybe time to get counseling. It's maybe time to go into a recovery room. It's maybe time to tell your husband the truth. It's maybe time to admit that this job isn't work. Whatever the thing is, and that's coaching energy, but that can only come second. Does that make sense? Like, don't pre-coach, because it just adds trauma. It just makes that thing more scared, because it's like, I don't know how to do that. (laughs) I need somebody to take care of me. (laughs) It makes perfect sense. It's incredibly resonant for me and I think for all of us here and we're out of time but I could talk to you for a lot longer and okay we got the important stuff I think I think so and I just want to thank you so much for sharing all of your incredible experience and wisdom with us here today that was very moving you're welcome sweetheart thank you and that's it for today's episode with Elizabeth Gilbert Thanks for following along with us, and I hope you tune back in next week for more from our brilliant guests. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to The Goop Podcast.